Welcome to the American Farrier's Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern. Today, Mitch Taylor is recognizable throughout the industry as the head of the Kentucky Horseshoeing School and a go-to clinician for presentations on equine anatomy. But before he was known as an educator, he spent his time working as a farrier in various disciplines, including racetracks out west and in the bluegrass state. In this episode, Mitch shares stories about his time as a farrier, what it was like learning under a legend in veterinary medicine, and he gives advice on building your practice after you relocate to a new location. We'll open this chat with Mitch talking about his early years before he became a horseshoer. I like to say I was born in in uh, Colorado and raised in Montana. So as a young boy, I would go up to um, all of my mother's people's. Uh, she had 13 brothers and sisters. And they were all ranchers and dry land wheat farmers in the northeastern part of Montana. So I, as a young boy, I would always go up there, and I got uh, really interested in the ranching lifestyle and uh, at an early age. And so as soon as I could, I, I moved up there and I, uh, to hang out with those people and to move out of Colorado. So my my father was not a rancher, but... Uh, and I didn't have anybody that was going to bequeath me a ranch, um, you know, like my cousins. And so I wanted to still stay in the livestock industry. So I decided to um, to start learning how to shoe horses so that I could still be around horses and cattle and, and stuff like that. So so I got a graduated high school, and then a buddy of mine was uh, – he was a Native American Indian – and he was uh, shoeing horses down at uh, Centennial Racetrack in Denver. And he told me how much money he was able to make. And at that time, uh, I think he was getting $40 uh, to to play the racehorse or something like that. I can't remember what it was, but uh, I know I remember I did the addition and I thought, man, that's, that's a way that I can save some money and buy a, buy a ranch one day. So I got into... That's how I got into shoeing horses. So I went to uh, the school up in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, in uh, I guess in 1975, and that's just a little mountain, a little mountain town in the on the western slope of Colorado, Rockies. And then while I was there, uh, I met a guy who was uh, a, a relative of the teacher. And he lived in Southern California in Orange County. And uh, his name was Robert Lewis. And Robert asked me when I got out of my, my school if I would uh, want to come and apprentice for him. And, and I accepted it. And so when I was, uh, I guess I was already 18 at that time, I drove to Southern California and uh, fulfilled my obligations as an apprentice for about a year. So you were in California and in, in working the track tracks there. Uh, when did you make your way to Kentucky? Well, so when I was in California, we didn't shoe any racehorses. <clears throat> we did um, we did um, uh, hunters, jumpers, and we did some western stock what we called stock horses back then. 
some reigning horses, um, you know, some Western type show horses. And so uh, it was a really interesting time because I lived right south of L.A. in a little place called uh, El Toro, right up the head of of Laguna Canyon. And so we would we would drive all the way up to I guess uh, Thousand Oaks, California, and all the way down to San Juan Capistrano. So we covered a, a pretty big range, but we didn't do any racehorses. So what I did was after I I completed my apprenticeship there. It was about a year, uh, and then I I came made my way back to Colorado, and actually I shoot I was up in the I shoot horses in Denver for a while. So I started off with my first business in the Denver area. You know, coming from the training that I had in Steamboat Springs was that we we had these hand crank coal forges, and we made everything. We made all of our tools. We made all of our shoes. We I didn't I didn't know how to really utilize a, a a factory shoe. And then when I did my apprenticeship, it was funny. We would go and buy all of our blanks uh, from Jay Sharp. And Jay Sharp was at that time was living in Yorba Linda, California. And um, that was uh, the first place I actually went to a, a farrier's clinic there one time. And I remember. Um, being in Jay Sharp's shop, we would go and buy front-shaped blanks and hind-shaped blanks, and then my, my mentor would uh, punch holes, clip them up, crop the heels, and that's how we shoot horses. So all through my schooling and my apprenticeship, we never used any any factory shoes. So I remember my first introduction to Jay Sharp was as I was walking around his his vast shop in California, I thought, and my my master was talking to uh, Jay. I picked up a hammer one time and started tinging one of his many anvils. And he bounded over several anvils and snatched that hammer out of my hand. I said, "Don't you ever smack an anvil with a hammer in my shop again, boy." And that was my introduction to Jay Sharp. Um, I just kind of held my arms out, and let him load me up with with shoes, and I went and stacked them in the truck and kept my mouth shut. And it was years later that Jay and I got to be uh, fairly good good buddies, uh, but it took it took a few years uh, for that to happen. So, what kind of impact did that have on you? Well, it was uh, it just taught me the the etiquette of walking around another man's shop. You know, it taught me how to respect another man's shop and how you don't you don't just do certain things. You, as a young apprentice, you learn how. Uh, to act a certain way you know it was like i was telling uh one of my instructors today that uh i remember leading a horse we used to work on these fairly high level show horses and i was leading a horse uh down the aisleway and another uh, groom was leading a horse the opposite direction and um one of those horses kind of cow kicked at the other one as they went by and uh the other horse just grazed the hind end of my horse. And I remember that when I got back to the truck, my, my master grabbed me by the collar, threw me up against the stall and told me that will never happen again. The, if anybody's going to get kicked walking horses around, you should be in the middle of it. It should be you. So position yourself in a way that if anybody's going to get hurt, it's you, not these horses. So, so it was a little bit hardcore, 
back then and how it how it shaped me was to you know shut up and pay attention and you know to keep my eyes wide open and so it was i didn't think it was necessarily a, a bad thing yeah sorry i had i had interrupted you could you go on with uh, kind of your progress there through where you were in california well yeah yeah so you know when i got done with 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 my apprenticeship i i came back to denver and i didn't have any money so i made a my first anvil was a a piece of railroad track my my dad had a oxyacetylene torch and so i remember cutting the the end of this 12 inches of railroad track uh with a torch so it would look so it was pointed like an anvil horn which did me absolutely no good but i thought it looked like an anvil and then i got my dad to to get a hole drilled in the back of it so i could turn heels and so that's how that was my anvil until I uh, went back to Steamboat Springs and talked my uh, instructor, my old instructor, out of one of the anvils in the shop. And I don't, I can't remember if I bought it or if I, I probably traded him something for it. But uh, so then I finally got a, a Centaur anvil, and and I used that for for years and years as the as the anvil I built all my shoes on. So you know, I finally got some some gear together and you know it was back then you you shoot a few horses and you made some money and you bought some tools and shoot a few more horses and and made a little bit more money and bought some tools and i remember that my prices were 18 dollars to shoot a horse all the way around with um, handmade shoes and eight dollars to trim so like any farrier along those days we had a lot of stories a lot of stories of, of being abused by a lot of people and learning the hard way so I shoot horses in, in Denver for a while, and then I decided to uh, move up uh, back up into the western slope, into the mountains. And um, know what I do? Let's see. I well, one winter, times were actually kind of lean. I remember, and I got a job on a roughneck and on oil derrick, and um, we actually went up to to Montana and Wyoming that winter, um, and then I. Ended up at, at back at my cousin's place in the winter of '78, up in Montana, and then I shoot horses up there for a while. So, so I kind of shot horses from Montana and Wyoming to Colorado for for a few years. Then I ended up going to college. So four years later, um, when I was 21, I decided to go to college and get a degree. So I'm so I moved up into uh, into Glenwood or into Gunnison, Colorado. Then went to Western State College and got my degree in biology and uh, chemistry. And so while I went to school there, I shot horses all the way through college. And during the ski season, I worked at a, at a ski shop repairing skis. That's the skill that I had in, in high school. I learned how to repair skis and, and tune skis and stuff. So I did that in the wintertime. And then in the springtime, I would... I'd work for a local rancher there, not cowboy for him, uh, during the cabin season. So for about six, eight weeks, starting at the beginning of April, I'd, I'd cowboy for him and help him with all of his first calf heifers. And by that time, you know, the weather had opened up so that people were starting to ride their horses. So I'd shoot horses all through the summertime, uh, late summer and into hunting season, which was like November. And then uh, people generally pull their shoes and um, go barefoot all winter 
And it's funny because I remember that uh, back then I put, was so proud of myself. I put all handmade shoes on these horses that I made out of my uh, my handmade forge uh, that I had in my little horseshoe trailer that one of my uncles helped me put together. And I remember telling my, I'll tell my students all the time that, you know, it was funny because they're here. I thought I knew how to shoe horses and putting handmade shoes on for $18. And, and looking back at it, really all I was doing was systematically disassembling these feet all summer and late summer until hunting season came where I couldn't really get any shoes tacked on them anymore because the feet were so tore up because of my efforts in trying to get them shod. And then the winter would come and we'd take the shoes off and then let the feet heal up enough for me to start the, the process of slowly disassembling them again uh, by the end of the summer. And so the first few years of, of my career, I really, you know, like a lot of guys, I really had no idea uh, what to do. I just learned on the job. And that really, there was a, a lot of uncomfortable um, horses in my wake, I'm sure. Although I thought I was doing a great job, um, now looking back at it, I had wished that I had had worked for some other people and had, and had done more work and and a longer apprenticeship time to to kind of put it together. But like most young, hard-headed young men, you know, we we think we we got it figured out, and and so uh, we just kind of carry on. So so yeah, that's um, so I ended up in in uh, Gunnison and shoeing horses and i think i got um i don't know somewhere down in uh must be about 1981 or 82 i got uh, hung up with a horse and drug around and stomped on and you know with not paying attention to my back i just still shoot horses and and my back got really bad so i had to have some surgery on it and i I was like 25 at this time and so uh, i decided while i was healing up uh, that I would go and and get some more some more training. So I decided to come to Kentucky and go to and get my master's degree at University of Kentucky. And so I got accepted here, and I think I got here in Kentucky in '85. I remember Sarah and I got married at the Midway Warming House in Crested Butte in August, and then we drove out here in August of 1985 to for me to go to graduate school. So that was kind of when my back was still tore up and I was, I thought, well, I'll take a couple of years, get my master's degree and let my back heal up. And lo and behold, when I got out here, I had no idea what the industry was like. Um, I, I, I get out here and I think at that time I was probably um, top man in, in Gunnison, Colorado. I think I was up to $28 to shoe a horse and, uh, that was like the most expensive horseshoe you could get in that country. So I show up here to Kentucky and, and there's guys I met, uh, like David Nadu and, and, uh, Steve Norman, those guys were getting $75 to shoe to plate a front end of a sales yearling with little Queens plates and three and a half nails. And it took, you know, all of like 20 minutes and they're using these things called stall jacks. And so, that kind of opened my eyes to, oh, wait a minute, maybe I can really make some serious money here. So while I was here, I got hooked up with a guy named Jim Rooney, Dr. Jim Rooney, and him and I hit it off really good. And so 
that's where I learned a lot of my um, anatomy and biomechanics was from Dr. Rooney. So how was this student for a while? Let, let me interrupt you and have you talk about it. I, I, you know, especially young people out there, I don't think they know about Jim Rooney's impact. Can you talk about his work and what it meant to you? Yeah, well, I guess I'll also, maybe I back up a little bit more, I'll also say that my experiences in me kind of learning how to shoe horses the way I did uh, greatly impacted the way, because the reason that I'm an educator now. And so, um, you know, there, there, there's no reason for horses to suffer because someone is trying to, to learn to shoe them. There's, uh, I think there's a, a method of doing it where the horse really doesn't suffer and it, it takes longer. And like most things, you know, if, if you take a little bit longer time in learning something, you learn it better. And what we found is <clears throat> students that go to our, our longer courses, uh, learn better. They have, they have more tools to help them be successful. They've mastered more skill sets. And so as a result, they end up staying in the industry and actually being horseshoers for a longer time. So, so the other thing that's going to help me in my education aspect of my career is getting to know Dr. Rooney. So Dr. Rooney is kind of thought of as the grandfather of equine biomechanics. So he was one of the first guys that wrote uh, a book in English on equine biomechanics. And he wrote a book called the lame horse. Um, and, and, and biomechanics of the horse. And he was very prolific. He published in all types of, of journals, including carrier journals. And, and when we, you know, when we had the old um, uh, hoof care and lameness and the Anvil magazine um, and the, and the American Farrier's journal, he's published in, in a lot of those in, in addition to referee journal articles. And so, um, he was one that really was a was a true horseman. He understood horses. He owned horses. He rode horses. Um, and and being a veterinary pathologist, um, as as well as a um, as a physics guy, he was able to to look at the the mechanics or the biomechanics of the horse and relate it to you know mathematical equations that would hold water but yet keep it real so that we could all kind of understand, um, you know, how, how the foot and how the, the lower limb functions, especially. And so he was very important in, in the, the, the next wave of biomechanics people that, that took, took it to the next step. Okay. That, that's Jim Rooney. Yeah. And so then, uh, uh after you finished your, your study at, at Kentucky, where what did you do next well so then you know i was married and i started having having babies and buying houses and buying trucks and then i got hooked up with another guy from colorado nebraska named steve steve norman and i've been trying forever to get steve norman into the the uh, hall of fame he's 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 a person that really does deserve to be there he's probably shot more derby winning horses more stakes winning horses than anybody alive or, or one of, one of the top few guys. Um, anyway, he's, he's right up there with, with, uh, the race industry. And that's all he's ever done is, is shoot race horses. He grew up on the racetrack in XR Bend, uh, in Nebraska and Eastern Colorado. Uh, he's been on the racetrack his whole life. Um, uh, and he's probably three or four years older than I am. 
I'm sorry, let me interrupt you really quick. I, I yeah. got kind of a question on on Steve and, and kind of those experiences when you came from Colorado and, and you you know, these guys were were making a good living. They were they were really standing out from the other farriers in the area as well. Uh, you know, did you find it hard or and what advice do you have for farriers? Because I'm sure you see this a lot with your students too, when you need to move and, and go to a new location, how do you how did you find the experience of trying to well, establish yourself? Well, it was actually, you know, horseshoeing is, is fairly simple, man. Once you learn the basic elements of it and you master the basic elements, you know, I had, um, I had a little, uh, Toyota truck and I had a forge in the back. And what I did was I would go out with, with Steve and, um, we would go to broodmare farms and we would trim, we'd trim, 40, 50, 60 head of broodmares each a day. And, um, and you know, there wasn't the only learning really going on there for me was to learn how to, how to manage these wet footed thoroughbred horses. And so my eyes were wide open to this whole thoroughbred industry, but how I really got established and started my own business is, is that I had this little Toyota truck with a forge in it and I went to Keeneland and, um, I didn't know what to do to, to uh, get to shoe any of these racehorses. So I, I knew that there was, knew a little bit about a racetrack because I worked in Centennial and Denver for a while. So I found the, the pony horses, the guys, the horses that are the bastard horses on the racetrack, you know, that no one really takes very good care of. And, you know, the apprentices are always the ones that are going over and shoeing them. And, and um, they're all long footed because they can't get farriers to shoe them. And so I set up up on the hill in Lexington and, uh, and I started shooing these pony horses, basically doing journeyman runs on them, shooing them with handmade plain stamped and fuller horses, cl- or, uh, shoes or clipped up and hot seated them on. And I'd look up and there's, there's four or five of these barriers, you know, standing there and never seen anybody make shoes really. And be shooing horses with handmade shoes. It seemed like, and they'd kind of snicker under their breath and, and, um, one thing led to another, but the word got out that, Hey, there's a, there's a craftsman here on, on the racetrack. And, and it really just took one or two trainers to give me a try. And that's what, that's what caused them to, to give me a try. Cause they realized that, Hey, if this guy can make shoes and shoe horses and, and hot seats and do that job, then they'd look at the job, you know, I'm going to have, I'm going to have him try my, my barn. And so I got a couple trainers to let me start shooting their racehorses and really that that's all it took uh and on the racetrack word word gets around like wildfires it's it's a small it's a little small environment you know it wasn't even a year uh after i got out of out of my graduate program here it wasn't a year before i had a full book of horses where i was shooing all thoroughbred horses at uh churchill downs and and keeneland and had several big farms um that i was that I was managing, you know, several, several hundred horses on, on each farm. So it wasn't in, in no time that I get a, a full book. And I think that just, you know, it didn't really have anything other than uh, probably uh, a personality helps, but, but the ability to, you know, your own personality will only get you so far for so long. You know, you've got to, as a farrier, you are, you are what you put down on the bottom of that foot. And so, you know, I, I, I just met, had a, had a mastery of the fundamental skills of being a farrier. I understood how to do it and I understood how to, 
how what what not to you know remove from a foot and really the only the problem I had uh, on on the farms was learning how to deal with these thoroughbred foot types that were really overhydrated and coming from the western part coming from Colorado western part of the United States where it's more of a high mountain desert you know you'll see more stuff here in Lexington in one summer as far as lameness and, and problems and you'll see in in Colorado or Utah or Montana or Wyoming you know in in several years um, the feet are just much drier back there they're generally much healthier you know the the, the horse the horses are are more quarter horse types, so they've got shorter pasture bones. So you don't you don't have as much um, as much issue, as many foot issues as you do uh, like we do here. And so that was a little bit of a learning curve, learning how to kind of retrim feet. No, not necessarily what you take, but what you create uh, when you're trimming feet. So that was kind of a kind of a learning curve there. But you know, from there it was just it snowballed like like most. Like most times, once you get your foot in the door uh, and you do a good job for people and you pay attention to your business and you, you know, you give them a good day's work and, and don't rape them with the price and, and give them a decent price. And, and I'm not saying doing it for free, but, uh, but I mean, expect to get, to get paid, but, but you, you do that and it's just a matter of time uh, before um, people always are looking for good quality farriers. So you pay attention to your feet and pay attention to your business. Um, you know, it's, it's a matter of time before you're, you're busier than you want to be. And that's what happened um, in almost every place that I've moved and, and set up to shoe horses is I've never really had a, a hard time finding, finding work. Did you ever find it hard to try to manage, get into it kind of the other way, get in trouble the other way of having too many accounts and you know not overwork yourself not get burned out yeah no no i don't know if it'd be burned out because you know young men don't really get burned out takes them you know guys my age get burned out but uh you you one of the problems was since i didn't have any kind of business acumen any formal business training you really had again i had to learn the hard way how to manage how to manage my time and time management is such an important, important aspect of running um, a service-oriented business like farriers do. That if it takes you an hour to shoe a horse, and you got eight hours in a day, you, you you don't have enough time to get eight head horses done. You know you've got to figure in a lot of other things that happen during the day, um, and and that's and that's what experience has has shown me. But again, I had to learn that kind of the hard way. Um, so, you know, yeah, you, you do have to be, you know, what I try to teach my students is time management skills. And even when they're students in the school, they have to be responsible and accountable for their time. Uh, and if they're not, then, then they have to pay for it. And it's, and it's usually uh, painful on them. So they learn before they get out of school a little bit about managing their own time and being accountable for for their own time and their own actions. Yeah, definitely. That, that's an important aspect of it. What drew you to the educational aspect? Yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I had um, in 1989, I guess, I had another major back issue. Uh, I had a, had a double disc 
prolapse. Uh, I remember, uh, you know, when your when your discs prolapse and they they push into your spinal cord. One of the, the diagnostics that they do is a, called a myelogram. So they what they'll do is they'll inject some dye into your cerebral spinal fluid in your spinal cord, and then they basically take an X-ray and or a CAT scan of you, and then that that dye will show how much of the of the the nervous impulses are getting through because because of the blockage. So this particular blockage was uh, only, it was 90% blocked. Only 10% of the nervous impulses were getting through. And I remember uh, that the neurosurgeons laughed at me when he said, you're going to have to have surgery. And I said, I'm not going to have surgery again. And I remember him laughing, saying, there's no way you're going to get out of this. Uh, This is, you know, both legs are numb and 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 this is the the worst prolapse disc I've ever seen. And so I laid up and I laid up in traction in the hospital for about three weeks. And my mom sent me a copy of the Rocky Mountain newspaper, Rocky Mountain News, one time. And I was reading about these doctors that had worked on Joe Montana when Joe Montana had had his back injury and his back surgery when he was playing NFL football. They didn't really believe in lower back surgery and. And so I didn't either. I didn't have a good experience uh, with the, the back surgery that I had when I was 25. And so here I am again, fully booked, horseshoe, uh, not able to bend down to put my own uh, my own socks on, you know. And so um, now at this point, I had a couple kids on the ground, and uh, or at least one. Yeah, I had a couple kids on the ground. I think no, I had one, and and a house and uh business and you know i thought geez what's you know what's going on with this back is this going to be a constant problem with me and so as i was healing up from that episode what what i actually ended up doing was going to california and visiting with these guys that worked on joe montana's back and they taught me this method of what is like pilates it was it was pilates before pilates came out and they called it lower lumbar spinal stabilization and they taught me how to make a muscular core change the way that I move and allow my back to heal itself. And by God, if it didn't do that. So I worked hard to change the way I moved so that when I moved, I wouldn't irritate my, that back, that back area. And I strengthened up my core, uh, to provide a muscular cast basically. And, um, and it took about six months, but by God, my back healed up and it healed up proper there were there were no um, uh, scars or anything with it. There was no no bone chipping that that you know that they had to do on the other one, and and it healed up. Um, and now it looks normal. You know, once I got that back healed up, um, I started to realize, man, maybe you need to. Here you got two you got two degrees. You know, um, you got all this academic stuff. You've got all these you know years of, of horseshoeing. And I have met a guy named Don Canfield, and I would, while I was healing up, I'd go down and substitute for Don. And I'd also go work for, for Dan Burke uh, at FPD years ago, and I, would, and I couldn't race shoe horses for a while, so I would, I would make his uh, aprons for him, you know, his leather horseshoe aprons, and they called me Stitch and Mitch. So, so and I would also go down and work for Don Canfield and substitute for a while. And I decided, well, maybe this, maybe this is the thing to do. And so I prayed about it, and I kind of figured that 
I kind of got the idea that maybe I, that's right, my next step where I needed to be. And so I bought Don Canfield's school. Didn't pay very much for it, but, uh, and then Don retired. And then we built uh, the Kentucky Horseshoeing School. And I guess that started in 89 or something like that, probably. Yeah. I think that was my first class, 1989. And that's when Don started people every Monday. He'd start a new group. He'd give them an old beat-up box of tools, and he'd give them an initial lecture about an hour, and then send them out there and start shooting horses, start tacking shoes on. And so there was really no no format to it other than that. And Don was an intelligent guy, but he was burnt. He was burnt out. He was an, he was an excellent American saddlebred horseshoeing farrier, the long-footed type farrier, but he was burned out at that school. And so, uh, so I took that school over and brought some new blood into it and got it revitalized and, and brought it to where it is uh, today. That's where it started, like 28 years ago. Yeah, and uh, there's a lot of time there. There's a lot of time in 28 years, and I, I have some questions about that. But I think more interesting is uh, what you've done in the recent years, you know, first being out there now being in Richmond, uh, I'm sure you could go on for another hour talking about this. You know, it's been quite an ordeal for you, and, and but I think the progress and what you've done with the school is one of the more newsworthy things in recent years with Farrier Education. Can you can you talk about what you've done with the campus at Richmond and and what you've done for accreditation? You know, I so I had this this school and I had pretty much brought it to I, I, what I thought is. You know, it's maximum. You know, at one point, Sam Gooding and I, you know, looked up one day and there's 55 students in the school. And it's me and Sam and a, and a little shop apprentice. And, you know, that, that drove Sam crazy, man. He, he he had enough of that and he went to work for Jim Ford for a while. But uh, now he's now he's back home. But, you know, I couldn't I couldn't I was frustrated because I couldn't really train people properly. Um, I was out there way out in the country. You know, I didn't have any real education um, partners. I had a fairly poor bunch of horses that would come in. And and I got it to the point where I would start classes every 12 weeks rather than every Monday. But still, I needed to make it more professional. You know, the building just wasn't uh, working for me. So I decided to come into Lexington and buy a piece of ground and, and, and build a more professional school. And I was tired of, of having short courses. So I, over the years, I've had everything from two-week courses to three-week, four-week, six-week, you know, eight-week, nine-week, 12-week, 16-week. And, and the classes kept going up in, in length. And when I was the last um, class I had in, in, uh, in the old school, Mount Eden, Kentucky, was uh, 22 weeks. And by God, if most people didn't come for 22 weeks. So I found that there's a definite correlation to the quality of person or student you get and the length of time. And also, most importantly, how many of those people are actually successful shoeing horses? Anything, anything less than 12 weeks, I found um, that we have way less than 10% success rate. And as, as it gets over that, then the, the and I'm, and I'm defining a success rate as, somebody shooing horses for their main source of income after five years. We, I knew that there was this relationship to the 
kind of learned it the hard way that the longer someone goes to school, at least in my school, and I always put my heart and soul into it. It, it was it's never it was never just a job to me. I mean, every one of these people, um, um, I try I I took it um, the responsibility of their their relying on me to teach them a trade. The frustrating thing was that they only had enough money to come to a short course. So they weren't, they weren't really willing to have that much skin in the game. And I realized that if somebody doesn't have skin in the game, then, then there's really, it's a waste of everybody's time. I mean, this trade takes a long time to get to know, to get to learn. And, and that meant it takes a long time to, to go through a schooling program. I mean, you can, you can go out and try to shoot horses and spend 20 years doing it. If no one helps you and you don't learn anything, you can still do it wrong for 20 years. So, so I learned some valuable lessons and I decided to build a school that was more professional to allow me to accomplish my goals. And that's to get a, a more of an industry acceptable percentage of people that are, that come to my school that end up being farriers. And that was, my goal was 70%. So what I did was I decided I'm not going to have any more of these short courses. I'll just go, if I can't run these long courses and, and give the education, you know, it's it, it, the needs that it, that it needs and deserves, then I'll just go back and start shooting horses. Um, you know, I'm done with, with this. It, it was, it seemed like a tremendous waste of time. So what I did is I contacted some industry partners. I contacted the University of Kentucky, and I contacted the Kentucky Horse Park and Keeneland Racetrack and uh, a bunch of veterinarian um, outfits and and made a plan that um, that I'll develop a curriculum. I'll have a, a nine-month program. And um, so what I did was uh, that's just what I did. We built uh, uh, Brian Osborne and I and Martin Zimmer, uh, we came over from Mount Eden. We bought a little farm. Um, we built this 15,000 square foot shop. Um, that's got three shops and two classrooms and office spaces for the office staff and all that. And then an 8,000 square foot dormitory. As I realized that people, people need a dormitory, you know, you, you can't teach horseshoeing, um, and not have them give them a place to stay. So, so that was the deal. And, but the problem was, it was all good. Um, until 2008 and 2009 came, and that's when the, the economic, the worldwide economic nightmare hit, and the banks went uh, insane. And you know that's when we, we went into this great depression or recession or whatever it was. And so after that, here I had this great school, and I had this this curriculum that I developed with other with help from professional educators, and and uh, no one had any money. You know, I wasn't going to give it away for free. So, so I found that there were people would go to a, a six week school and I wasn't okay with that because a school shouldn't lower its, its amount of time to teach people to shoot depending on what they can afford. To me, that's backwards. It, I mean, it takes a certain amount of, of time and effort and accountability to learn how to shoe horses and and then it just doesn't matter. It just takes a certain amount of time. If you don't have that time, then you shouldn't be learning it. You know, it's the same thing in medical school or engineering school or, or whatever. You know, there's just a certain amount of time that it takes. And and unless you can figure out a way to, to pay for that, then you, you can't participate in that. And so I decided, well, now I got this 
program built, so but no one has any money anymore. So what uh, what am I going to do? You know, I'm I'm all in here. I'm I'm dug in pretty well. I'm I got my my proverbial nuts on the chopping chopping block, if you if you know what I mean. And so I decided that well, how does the rest of the the, the professional schooling system work? Well, wait a minute. When I went to college, I got a guaranteed student loan, and I was able to get a loan. And that loan could help me with living expenses and pay for my school, and I could slow down, and I could go and, and learn whatever I was learning in a non-threatening uh, or non, you know, without a lot of uh, stress on me. So why can't I do that? So I checked out how you get that done, and I found um, that the Department of Education will uh, credit schools, but you've got to be able to bring your, your level of training up to a, an acceptable level. So I learned all about that. I went to several seminars in D.C. and California, hired some people to help me, and then we got ourselves accredited with the Department of the U.S. Department of Education through uh, an organization called the ACCSC, and they're an organization that that uh, accredits specializes in accrediting schools that have a vocational nature. And so I got accredited, and and what that did was that allowed and and throughout that process, it took three years. They looked at everything from not only my curriculum, how I derived my curriculum, what the reading was, how I um, implemented my tests, how I assessed my people, were the assessment tests related to the curriculum, uh, was I teaching in 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 a correct, you know, educational format, and blah blah blah. Not only that, but what what is my financial up, uh, how do I hire and fire the office staff? What kind of continuing education do I provide? So I had to go go through all this. It took three years, and they finally accredited me as a as a college, and and this allowed me then to go take it the next step, which was to pursue what we call Title IV accreditation. And so that's where that's where it really got sticky. So that means that the federal government now is going to allow your students to get a, a loan from them, and I, and I stress it's a loan, um, that, and you have to pay it back, just like going to a bank and, and getting a loan. But the government gives you loans. So anybody that's been to college, most people that have been to college know what that guaranteed student loan program is. And so now uh, we, we, we got approved to be able to have students come to our school to give them their special number, and they could now um, contact the federal government and participate in the guaranteed student loan program. So now students can get a loan, uh, and where there's a lot of regulations with that, but, but throughout this whole process, it has been a hassle, but it has made me a much more professional educational institution by far. Uh, because I've had professional educators constantly look at it and help me through this process, so that's one of the, one of the beneficial things. Now, as a result of it, the students that go through our nine month course and and graduate, and not everybody graduates. You know, I had to get on Facebook today and and message a guy that that dropped out of school that said he was a, a graduate of Kentucky Western School and tell him to take that down. You know, but but the people that do graduate. We've got between eight and nine uh, out of ten people doing an apprenticeship, and 
those people that do an apprenticeship, we've got about an 85% success rate of those people that graduate school that are shoeing horses for their primary means of income after four years. So I, I changed it from five years to four years because I needed to get uh, some numbers. So after four years, there are people that are still shoeing horses as, as the average is 85%. Now, that's that surpassed my my goals, and it and it it never ceases to amaze me uh, how the the people that I thought well no one's going to come to a nine month program and and pay that kind of money I think it was twenty twenty two thousand dollars when we started off you know but by golly there are people that are out there and the interesting thing is that we have now I've gotten rid of a lot of the riffraff students you know the troublemaker students the people that aren't really that serious about it that just kind of read an article in the back of Western Horsemen and talked to some dude and decided they're going to make a lifelong career of shooting horses but not knowing anything about it. Now I've got serious people who have done their due diligence, who are committed, who have skin in the game, and it's really enjoyable now because we, you know, we've got a group of, of about 28 students right now. I've got four instructors there, and it's just enjoyable to go to work now because everybody's engaged these students really want to learn how to shoe horses and to see the benefits of what you're doing to, you know, to a young person in time is, is really fulfilling. And so, yeah, it's, it, it's all in all, it's been a, it's been a good thing. And, and I hope now, uh, like for example, because of where we're at, Jeff, uh, right, right close to Lexington, I've got a guy named Jeff Tomlinson, who's a biomechanics guy from the University of Guelph that I have uh, that I've known, and he's going to be down in Lexington doing a talk. And so when he's here, he's going to come and give my students a two-hour lecture on surfaces and the biomechanics of how shoes are affected by different surfaces. Um, you know, I never would have been able to uh, have that happen in the old school. Um, and so, all in all. It's been a really a bump in the quality of education for the students. Um, I, I talk to students all the time. You know, my me and my office staff, we know what we're doing. We know that the all, where all these students are going, and it's just really cool to watch these students progress and go along after their after their um, you know graduation and their apprenticeship, and watch them develop um, and watch them develop into good farriers that they are. So after 28 years, what have you noticed about, or have you noticed any difference between students over that time? Like the students of today versus maybe 20, 28 years ago? Well, 28 years ago, the students were a lot tougher. <laughs> I tell you, <laughs> uh, students today, uh, it's very, not all of them, but a lot of them kind of expect, you know, expect, um, they, I don't know. They don't seem like they, as a group, necessarily maybe work as hard. Um, that being said, you know, most of those guys, uh, they're out there. But, um, you know, you've just got to be a lot more careful, I can tell you. You can't, you know, I'm, I like to tell jokes, and I've got to be careful with my inappropriate jokes. And that's nothing but being more professional. So, really, um, I've noticed that there's a lot more women nowadays. Uh, and that seems to be a worldwide trend. Uh, you know, I've just come from 
uh, doing some lectures and demonstrations over in Sweden. And 70% of the people in the farrier schools in Sluinga, Sweden, are, are females. I'm getting a lot younger student, whereas years ago, the average age of student was was 30 years old. And that probably was why they were tougher. I, I would think they were tougher because they had more life experiences. And and so nowadays, the average age of student is 22. And so these are young people that are, that are this is their first, you know, trade. And um, we're getting people that have horse sense, that have been around livestock, and they know how to work. But um, you just have to be a little bit more careful nowadays, I guess. A little more politically correct, <laughs> you know the old, you know the old days of, uh, of, of you know the way I was treated by Jay Sharp. Let's say that that wouldn't go today. You, you just can't do that to people. You've got to explain to them why they, you know, why they're in trouble. You know, but we've got some pretty substantial rules and regulations, so we don't have a whole a problem with that. Too bad. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing too. I think with how you set up your school, these changes in recent years where you're trying, you know, trying to get a different caliber school, you're, you're not to knock anybody else, but you're, you're gearing for a type of student. And I guess maybe in some ways they then put some different demands on you of, of, of professionalism and those things you sort of talked about. Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, for example, these guys are paying a lot of money. They're used to, you know, some of them have been to college. We're getting a lot of vets. So they're used to having a professional school. And so when they come here, we we advertise we've got a professional school. And so they that's kind of, you're right, they hold us accountable. Uh, so we just can't, you know, BS them. Um, you know, things have to go. We have to, to produce what we say we're going to do and, and do it in that manner. And that's what they expect for sure. An interesting aspect, too, about your school is, uh, you know, there's some things that are irrefutable, you know, anatomy and so on. Uh, but then you're, you're also based in the, the history of the trade, the traditional presentation, uh, you know, uh, shaping and, and building a steel shoe. But I think an interesting aspect is you marry both the modern with, you know, with tradition. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, yeah. I mean, um, there might be some old traditionalists that find this her her heretic, but uh, I've gotten uh, to understand this this new hoof care, um, natural hoof care uh, industry, and so it's that's part of our industry nowadays. And so I don't want the way I train our students is that you are you are uh, going to be the hoof care professional and so so if somebody reads um a story in, in equus magazine or or whatever and wants to try booting you know the old days is that the the the, the barefooters or the booters would would always do that and they the farrier you would get fired and the you know the the barefoot um booter would come in and do that and i feel that we that a professional foot care um, person needs to not only know the really hard aspects of correct trimming, you know, correct um, shoe fitting, uh, shoe making skills, 
but we also need to know how to utilize some of the newer methods, which are which are boots and some of the glue-on uh, synthetic shoes. And so we incorporate um, we we incorporate what boots are. What are the different types of boots? How you use them? How how you go about if you want to become trained in them and and and, and know how to fit them? We've got guys from the industry that come and and the industry reps that come and give uh, seminars to the students at the school. Um, they let them have wet labs. Uh, everybody from, um, you know, we've got the, the glue glue shoe guys uh, that come and they all send, students will, they send products so the students can actually glue the shoes on, use the pads, use the, the different new methods. And so I want my students to be well-rounded, not just, not just people that are uh, put steel shoes on, but we're in a, in a time where we need to use different methods. We need to use steel. We need to use aluminum. We need to use synthetics. And you should be well-versed in all of it. Um, so if, if there's a need, if it's warranted, if the customer wants it, they shouldn't have to go to another branch of foot care to get it. You should be able to do it. So it's my opinion that somebody's going to drop a barrier and go barefoot. The barriers should be able to do barefoot too. If that's what you want, ma'am. We can do that too, because I'm a I'm a foot care professional. So we cover all that because I feel it's my responsibility. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with. I don't I don't need those. I think you talk to any good barrier, we can manage manage most feet just fine with with good proper traditional barrier methods. Um, and there be there may be some newer methodologies that we use but um but we you know we don't we don't really need to go the synthetic route because we can't fit a shoe and and i find that a lot of times people don't want to put the time and effort into learning how to properly fit shoes which does take a long time and to become a, a how to nail them up properly um but it's so much easier just to to go the synthetic route so we're training people that can do both so and I, I just feel that that's our responsibility. Yeah, I think that's uh, on the other side. Yeah, it's being responsive to the owner, but also uh, kind of so, something I see is the the ability to be flexible to work in different mediums. Uh, you know, and it's not necessarily a, a an owner thing, but you never know what you might face out there, and you need a, a different line of thinking. Exactly. And so you know, it's like. One of the things that we do is we teach our, our students how to weld. Um, I would like to have the next the next improvement I'd like to make to the school is to actually have um, a better weld shop where I can hire a welding instructor to come in and give these guys proper, uh, more more comprehensive welding education so that they can not only graduate with a, a diploma in ferriery but also have a, a certificate, a low-level welding certificate. So if something happens and they get hurt or they can't shoe horses anymore, they can, they also, they can always weld, you know, which is a kind of a complementary um, uh, industry in itself. And so, you know, we're always improving our curriculum and, and, and I, and assessing it and seeing how we're doing. If we're going, if we're, if we're accomplishing our goals, our mission statement, which is to provide high quality uh, primary barrier training uh, to provide um, continuing education 
and to have a, uh, an element and a presence in community outreach. Those are our three main pillars. <clears throat> and so, you know, we've got a, a PAC board, which is a program advisory committee that we meet um, three times a year. We've got a meeting tomorrow. And the people that are on our committee are, are professors at the Animal Science Department at UK, are veterinarians, um, are farriers, and just people in the industry. And we talk about, you know, what we're doing, where we're going. Uh, we revisit our goals, our basically our, you know, our, our business model, you know, because our business model is fluid. Um, and it has to be. I mean, if my business model wasn't fluid, in 2008, I wouldn't have uh, pursued um, national accreditation. But so one of the things that we teach our students in the business aspect is that you have to work not only on your, on your, in your business. We all like working in our business, but we also have to spend time at the desk and with the cerebral time of working on our business as well to keep it strong, uh, to keep it on the on the on the cusp, and. Um, you know, always, always learning new stuff. So that's, that's what I always felt with my private practice. That's what I feel with my school. And that's what we teach our students. When you've had students and you've had a, a lot of students graduate, what, what are some of the, I guess, what's some of the feedback you get out there and, and how that has shaped what you're doing and, and shaped your goals with what you want to do with the school? Well, it's kind of funny, uh, Jeremy, because all the time, I get students that argue with me. Why do we have to do this? You know, when I go home and I work with my farrier on the weekend, he says, you don't have to learn how to build shoes because there's all these new shoes on the market nowadays and you can buy anything you want, you know, or why do we have to learn all this anatomy, you know, and, 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 and all of the academic, you know, things we put them through, you know, our, our curriculum is broken up into seven sections. It's horsemanship, uh, anatomy, biomechanics, um, confirmation, locomotion, the farrier uh, skills part of it, which is a huge section, um, lameness and pathology, and business. And so, one of the uh, one of the things that we that we struggle with as a as a as an instructor, as students questioning, why do we have to do this? Well. And it's happened forever, and any any farrier instructor will, will tell you this. But it's so funny because I have a whole file of letters of people that write me back and go, "Dear Mr. Taylor," or "or Dear Sam Gooding," um, I want to apologize for being such a knucklehead. I now see why you made me learn how to do this and made me do it over and over and over, and and you made me master it. Um, I can just think of of, of a guy just graduated, you know, two classes ago, he was such a pain in the butt. You know, he was his late forties. He thought he knew everything. You know, he'd been an EMT, he'd been a fireman he, and he had certifications and everything. And he just didn't understand why we had to go to learn how to shoe horses along hard, slow way. You know, he thought it should be more modern and stuff. And so when he left and we didn't leave on good terms, you know, uh, he graduated, but not tops of tops in his class, which he 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 should have he thought he should have been. And a, a girl, two girls, got higher scores than he did, and he didn't like that. And it took him about six six months to cool down. But he's finally emailed me and basically apologized and said, "Listen, now I know the exact same thing. 
now I know what you're talking about. He said, I'm, I'm taking uh, business from farriers around here that have not been trained and what you taught me, what you, you and Sam and, and, and Stan have, have taught me. Uh, it's, you're right. It's, it's basics. It's mastery of fundamental farrier skills. And it's what's uh, having me uh, get all this business that I didn't think I would get this fast. And so that's a phenomenon that happens all too often. And so you just kind of have to grit your teeth, you know, bite your tongue and say, well, you have to learn how to do this because I said so basically, you know, and, and you got to be careful because you can get pretty authoritative and, and, um, but, but we know what works. We know how to, how to properly maintain feet. We know the, the skills that's, that's necessary. See, we need, Jeremy, we need our students when they leave to be able to educate themselves. So they need to know these skills, both academically and practically to a point that they can assess their own work and they can, and they can continue their education themselves to a point anyway. So, you know, we've adjusted things up from, you know, years ago telling people, you know, I can make you a horseshoe to really nowadays you spend nine months with us, you're, you're, you've got the potential to be a good horseshoe, but right now you're just a good apprentice. And that, and that is hard for some people to, to swallow. They're like, wait a minute, I just went nine months and paid you a lot of money and you say all I am is an apprentice? Well, yeah, that's, that's how this trade works. It's going to be three to five years before you're really a, a, a competent farrier. That's just the way it goes. You know, ask anybody that's done any kind of competition, horseshoeing, they'll tell you it takes a certain amount of, of shoes to be able to, to get it done. And I don't know if that has to do with this rule of 10,000 or not, but I, I suspect that it's, that it's, that it's, it has something to do with it. You know, it's interesting because I think it, it's unique to farrier, at least in my experience, it's it's unique to, to some farriers or maybe it has more to do with, you know, it, whether or not you go to school, you can buy a, buy a truck and put a sign on your truck that says you're a farrier. I'm not trying to introduce the discussion of licensing, but it, it's unique to farriers in that uh, I think not all of them, but a lot of young people think they can just get and go with it. And it's not the experience with electricians. It's not the experience with plumbers or many other fields. Why, why do you think that is, or do you disagree with that? No, I totally agree with that. And that's because uh, there's no, there's nobody that's holding them accountable. I mean, I don't want to bring up licensing or regulation or anything, but, but there's really nobody that's saying you need to demonstrate basic uh, a basic competency before you can charge money to the general public you know i mean i think that that has value i think there should be minimum required standards and i've always wanted i do not want big brother i do not want the government involved um in my life or in my business i don't need them to help me uh make a living for my family but there comes a point to where when people abuse it, that's what rules are for. Rules and regulations are for to keep the, the people that are abusing it. And so, you know, I tell people that, you know, we need to, we need to um, regulate ourselves. We need to police ourselves. And that comes with just personal integrity. And that, 
And that comes quite frankly from the home, you know? Um, so it all comes from there, but let's face it, we're, we're in the real world and not everybody comes from the same home life. And so, um, I would hope that, that our, that the AFA would lead us in this. And so I, I firmly believe that people want to be led and we need leaders. And I was hoping that uh, an organization would come along to help lead us and, and to help us manage ourselves better. Um, and that's how I think it should be done. Um, now, whether that ever happens or not, you know, in my lifetime, I don't know. Um, but I think that would be one of the main jobs of a farrier association, whether it be the AFA, whether it be the AAPF. And somebody's got to kind of have some teeth and go, wait a minute, this is, this is right and this is wrong. Um, we all know what the elements of a properly of a proper shoe job are. Um, you know, we can all, we'll all argue on maybe how we got there, but we'll all pretty much agree on if this horse is properly shot or not, or correctly shot or not. I would hope that at some point that would be better, but right now I can't control it, Jeremy. So what I've decided is to just do my own life in my own realm of people and sphere of people that I influence, which have been thousands of people over 28 years, I'll have to tell you. We're proud of our of our students, and as a matter of fact, guess where the majority of our mentors that take our apprentices come from? Past students. They're past students, and it's weird because they get it. They they're believers in good basic uh, traditional fairy. They they understand what we're talking about, and when we send our students out to do apprenticeships. Uh, they it it's kind of in the family, and so nowadays our best mentors are are our ex students. Those and the guys that that compete a lot, by the way, that have a shop and have and spend time in the shop honing their skills. I got okay. one more question. I, I you know with all this investment and, and all the students you've seen, what's next for you? What you know you got a lot going on. Do you think about legacy or anything like that, or, or what? What do you hope to accomplish in the next few years? Well, I got stuff in the works, but really, um, I would like to be able to um, do some research. I would like to be able to, to quantify some things, things that we teach, things that I know uh, work, techniques and theories and whatnot. I would like to be able to to do some research and, and prove some stuff. Um, not necessarily out what, what my own theories, but just things about barrier, you know, uh, no one has really done a good job of saying, you know, this is how we shoe a cowhawk horse, or this is, this is how we, we shoe a horse that interferes with this confirmation has not done a good job of, you know, there's research to say things like, well, wedge pads don't have much of an effect on breakover or whatever. But no one's ever really taken it to a level of, of, of a practical, a real practical point. And that's that, wait a minute, horses move differently depending on their age, their sport, their confirmation. And so I need to, I would like to do some very specific research. And then I'd like to, to do some writing as well. So that's, that's kind of what I, uh, I have to do. I really miss, uh, 
just just holding down a book of horses, just shoeing, shoeing a book of horses, you know. I've uh, been in a shop situation with students for so long, uh, I kind of miss just being out by myself shoeing horses. So, yeah, you never know. I've got a really competent team. You know, Shane Carter always used to ask me, uh, who teaches the teacher, Mitch, huh? Who teaches the teacher? And I can tell you now, I know the answer to that. Um, and and the, the answer is, the guys that I've trained, that I communicate with over the years, you know, I've had, we've had, I think, something like 10 or 11 people make the American Farriers team of our students. Um, and who teaches the teacher are when the apprentices learn their skill, like Sam Gooding going out and, and feeding his family, shooting horses for as many years as he's done 20 years. Uh, he's the one that keeps me fresh. And so, so, you know, the, the student that comes home is the one that, that teaches the teacher. And so um, I've got a really competent guy in Sam Gooding. He's really um, invested and involved in the school, taking ownership of it. So I look forward to seeing Sam develop um, in the in this school and, and uh, you know, going from there. I'd like to thank Mitch for sharing his stories with us in this episode. If you have any suggestions or comments on this or our other episodes, please post them to our podcast page at AmericanFarriers.com slash podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening.